Turn with me as everyone uh, seems to be leaving, at least the children wise. Turn to the book of Titus with me. Titus, we're in Titus. Our scripture lesson um, in Titus is verses 1, excuse me, verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1. Our scripture lesson, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Let me read to you the text, and then we'll get into uh, uh, the scriptures and the sermon. So, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, reading from the ESV, standard, uh, English Standard Version this morning. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer of God's stewards, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy, infallible word this morning. Our series is called The Gospel-Ordered Church. Why? Because young Pastor Titus was left in the island of Crete by the Apostle Paul, too, as it says, put what remained into order in all the churches on that island. Both Paul and Titus were on the island of Crete, somewhere between Paul's first imprisonment and release and his second imprisonment, which led to his martyrdom in around 69 A.D., letter written probably around 65, 64, 65 A.D., uh, three letters Paul wrote to, three, uh, to two pastors, three letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Actually, the order is First Timothy, then Titus, and then right before, right before Paul was killed for the faith, he wrote Second Timothy. So if you read Second Timothy, keep in mind, Paul is at the end of his life and kind of give a, a different flavor to that book, that Second Timothy was his last one. Both Titus and Timothy, young men who were mentored and trained and, and uh, uh, commissioned, by the apostle to help him in his church planting efforts. Uh, if Paul were here this morning, I'm sure he would tell you that it really was by God's grace that he, God gave these two young men who loved Jesus, who were willing to work alongside the apostle uh, for several years. It was, it was the grace of God. You can't read the letters and the epistles that Paul wrote and not sense this deep love and appreciation for Timothy and Titus. Timothy, we know, was instrumental in correcting and bringing some stability and teaching to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus, But Titus, we know, is instrumental in Corinth, as you read 2 Corinthians, and also, obviously, to establish leaders in and on the island of Crete. Establish leaders to correct uh, the church, to teach the church. Uh, Crete, we know, is in the Mediterranean Sea, um, southeast of a, uh, Greece, southeast of Greece. So just a general outline, chapter 1 of Titus teaches us about gospel leadership. We'll see that today, their, their character, their, their uh, responsibilities, uh, their, their qualifications, chapter 1. And chapter 2, gospel community, how, how the gospel forms and informs and transforms us as we live out the gospel in and among one another, chapter 2. And then chapter 3 teaches us and shows us how the gospel propels us on mission, how we are to declare and demonstrate the gospel uh, here, of course, here, but also on the island of Crete, which is interesting because the people in Crete, according to chapter 1, verse 12, are known for liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> it's kind of, a, kind of applicable today. But anyway, so this letter is really packed uh, teaching us, showing us how gospel centrality, if we keep the gospel center, will show itself in gospel practicality. How, how, I said this last week, how gospel doctrine demonstrates itself in gospel devotion. And remember, this letter is also written on the backdrop of Tim, uh, excuse me, Paul telling Timothy, exhorting Timothy to confront the heretics, to confront false teachers, chapter 1, verse 10 through 16, how these teachers have come and not only infected, but affected the church in Crete. He calls them, if you see in chapter 1, those of the circumcision party. There were, there were a group of men, I believe, both saved and unsaved, 
that were teaching that you must keep the Old Testament laws, particularly ceremonial laws, circumcision, uh, food uh, uh, laws as well. But they, they were saying you need to keep these laws. You can have faith in Christ, but you need to also add to your faith some of the laws. They were twisting what we call the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Last week, Paul opened up his letter identifying himself as a slave of God, aligning himself with the Old Testament, the Old Testament men like Moses and like David and other prophets who call themselves slaves of God. He also, if you look in chapter 1, verse 1, he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, making it clear that the apostle Paul was chosen, he was, he was called, he was commissioned by Christ himself. He was given the authority, invested in the authority of God and Christ to speak to Christ's people, to the church. He's been called and commissioned and given that authority by Christ himself. We know what reason, at least this letter, verse 1b, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, which leads, which goes with, which promotes godliness. And then we said last week, and it's important, we're going to pick it up again today, we get a little glimpse of what this major theme of this book is all about, how the gospel is not just the entrance into the kingdom. You must believe, repent of, of your sin and trust in Christ's atoning work. The gospel is not just the entrance into a relationship, into the kingdom of God, but it is everything while we are walking by faith. Dr. Tim Keller Famously, I would say, to some degree, wrote this. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. We are not justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience. But the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. End quote. And saying we should not respond in obedience, we're saying we should respond to the fullness of the gospel, all that Christ has done for us. Paul then identifies Titus, verse 4, calling him a true child in the faith, and then announces, as we ended last week, this blessing of, of grace and peace. Look at that, verse, at the end of verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, the, the unmerited of Love and favor of God that brought us into the kingdom, brought us into a relationship and sustains that relationship. And then peace, the, the peace of God that comes to us, has turned rebel and, and estranged sinners into an intimate relationship with him and, and sustains us, Paul says, as we pray and make supplications, Philippians 4. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, a guarding of our hearts of that same peace. And today as we look at Titus, we look at the first task he was given, and that is appointing leaders in the church. Now, as we look at this passage, I want to remind you that the apostle Paul has given some authority to Titus to do this. That we mentioned last week that the apostolic authority that belonged to just 12 men was not handed down from generation to generation, no matter what other people and, and, and um, teaching there may be. Um, the, the, the apostles and the authority of the apostles that they had commissioned by Christ ended with those 12. But Paul, with this letter, which is, has apostolic authority, has given Titus this instruction, the, this direction to appoint leaders in the churches. Leadership is under attack. And I know I'm speaking about myself and the other pastors in this, in this gathering. But leadership is essential for healthy churches. Leadership is essential for healthy churches. It has come under attack for several reasons. And some of the reasons because of the leaders in the church. Let me be honest. I'm just going to be honest. Because the leaders in the church have failed and abused their leadership. People have been hurt. People have been deeply scarred. By leaders who have used their authority and abused their authority in the church. That's true, unfortunately. It is also true that leadership is under attack because we live in this culture of individualism. Nobody tells me what to do. I'll do what I want, when I want, and I'm not living in community. I'm not living under authority. I'm going to do whatever I want. That's the kind of American way. 
Hebrews 13 says to the people of God, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls, so as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for what would be, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, I think this is important. So rather than just disregarding the Word of God, what God has clearly said, before we disregard not only the Word of God, but living under the authority which God has placed over the church, or submitting to leaders that are hurtful. Let's, let's, what does God say about leadership? So that we can properly submit to authority. Well, we'll see two things, three things. The instruction or the direction that the apostle gives to Titus in verse 5. We'll see the qualification where we'll spend a lot of time in, um, in, in, in verse 6 through 8. And then in verse 9, we'll end up with the application of the gospel. I think Paul is, is showing something very important in verse 9. So that's where we're at, okay? That's where we're at. First, the direction of the apostle, verse 5. Titus, from Paul, says this. This is why I left you, Titus, in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Right? As I, I've already directed you. That's what that text means. I already, th- this is nothing that Titus didn't already know. Right? One day Titus was called into the apostle's office or sat down by the sea, I don't know, and he said, listen, son, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm leaving you here, but I'm going. I'm going to visit other churches in Macedonia, maybe Asia Minor, but I'm going to leave you here. And while I'm here, I want you to stay for a while. I want you to continue the work in which we started. I mean, I think that's why Titus, excuse me, Paul wrote this letter. Titus already knew. Paul is now reminding him and, and the rest of the church in Crete could say, could see and to hear, this is what the apostle Paul wrote to us. You know, the apostolic authority he has. So everyone listen up. I, I already know this, but this is what he's writing. So there's authority in this letter. And what he's saying to him is, uh, you know, we'll continue, Titus, in the work in which we started. I want you to re- put what remained into order, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The direction I already gave you, that's what I want you to do. In other words, there are several things that need to be done in the churches. But, but Paul says, first and foremost, do not let the churches continue without leadership. Without those who love, protect, and feed, and help, and, and serve the flock, the people of God. Now this term, put what remains into order, maybe your translation says set right, is a Greek word that has two prepositions, epi and dio, and then ortho is where we get the word orthopedics. Or orthodontist, the straightening of bones, or the, the straightening of one's teeth. And, and the double preposition is, is a way in which Paul is writing to Titus to really stress and heighten the awareness and necessity of what needs to be done. So what Paul is saying to Titus is to, to exhaustively and, and to not give in. And to fully straighten out that which isn't straight. What was left unfinished. This is what I want you to do. It started. We, we got the work started. But there are some things that still need to be organized. Look, starting with, Paul says, appointing responsible, qualified leadership to appoint elders. To appoint, to put in charge, to ordain, maybe your translation says, the official capacity of leadership over the church, the role and office of the elder. Now, let's get into this a little bit. Now, the word, have you, in, in verse 5, elder, the office of elder is the Greek word presbyteros, and used many, many times in the, in the New Testament. It's Old Testament Hebrew equivalent, uh, zokane, is a reference to both older and mature men, just being old and mature, and a reference also to a body of leaders. It can be used for both. Here, obviously, he's talking about the leadership of the church. Notice, it doesn't say elder, it says elders. Point elders. Some will say, well, there's multiple, uh, Crete was known from being an island of multiple cities, so you need multiple elders to to reach the multiple cities. That is not what it means. In fact, of all the other places in the New Testament, when it speaks of elders, it speaks of the plurality 
of elders in one local church. That's the pattern, the New Testament pattern for the church, is to have a plurality of elders. That's exactly what we have here and why we have it here at King's Chapel. We here at King's Chapel have a, 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 a plurality of elders. We have a, a team ministry mentality with different people, with different gifts, some full-time, some bivocational, some salary, some not salary. But there's a plurality of elders, which is a, a, a blessing, a blessing to the church. You have multiple men with multiple gifts, with multiple strengths to undertake responsibilities together for the spiritual care of the people of God. Elders. Now look down with me at verse 7 you'll see the word overseer. Notice synonymous use of elder and overseer. Verse 5, elder. Verse 7, elder. Overseer, excuse me. Same office, synonymous use. That's a little bit of a different word, though. Overseer, in verse 7, is the word episkopos. Scopos means to see. Um, scope, we get the word scope, to see. Periscope is, some, uh, is, is a scope, is something you see and you, that you look around. Peri, look around. Microscope. Scopus, something, you know, you see that's very small. The episcopus or the episcopos is someone who looks over. Epi is to look over. Paul, the apostle, understood culture. He was a great missiologist. Many times when Paul uses these words, although they're synonymous in some places, in other places when he speaks to the Jewish people, he speaks of the presbyteros. They, they understand elders from the Hebrew community. A lot of times when he speaks to the, to, to the Greeks, uh, he'll use the word episkopos. They understood that. Sometimes he does it synonymously, like here. He says, elder, overseer. Same person, same office, interchanging those words. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Peter says this. I exalt the elders. I Excuse me, I exhort the elders. Presbyteros, Hebrew term. Among you, as, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as the partakers of the glory that is going to be revealed. Then he says, shepherd the flock, poinemo, pastor the flock. That's among you, exercising episcopos, oversight. He uses all three, pastor, overseer, and elder. He says, do this not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not for a shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So oversee the community, be the mature elder and fit that role, and shepherd and care for the people of God. So we have different talents, different gifts, different abilities, but the shepherds, the overseers, the elders share this commonality of function and the call to serve and lead the church. If you ever wonder, maybe you never do, and that's okay too, a lot of times in a lot of stuff we put out on the internet or, or um, even here, if you see it online, we have pastor slash elder or elder slash pastor. We do that on purpose, actually, because we don't want you to think that the elder is one body of believers and the pastors are another. That's not biblical. Pastors and elders. So we try to remind ourselves and to teach the congregation pastor slash elders because it's one office according to Scripture. And leadership is essential in any organization. The body of Christ is no different, right? Everything rises or falls on leadership. No corporation, no organization, no body of believers in Christ will be healthy when their leaders are not. Dr. Daniel Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, said this. He said, today, as always, there is a tremendous need for good, godly leadership in the church. We need men who, by their integrity of life, maturity in Christ competency in theology and authenticity in ministry gain the allegiance of a congregation that knows the love of their soul as their shepherd. They trust him, a trust that must be earned, not demanded, to provide and protect, to feed and lead, to teach and tend for their spiritual needs, end quote. That's a great quote. Titus, you have to go ahead, appoint elders. We'll see what that looks like in a moment. This idea that the apostle is telling Titus to appoint is something under his apostolic authority. The Bible doesn't really say what, what is the method, um, uh, you know, the, not the, the method or the, the, the 
They teach about principles and qualifications, but not necessarily the method and procedures of how this is to be done in churches that are already established. So I just thought I'd take a minute to tell you what we do here. In order to be a pastor elder in this church, uh, as the pastoral team gathers, we are looking for men who are already using their gifts as a pastoral person. Okay, and, and what we do here is, if we believe God has called them, and let me, let me just say, any appointment, any ordination, is not something the church body does, it does something that the church body affirms. God does the calling, God does the gifting, God does the setting apart, and God raises up the leaders. The body of Christ just says, yes, that's what God is doing. Can't make anybody do something, God does all of that. And we feel like so, uh, that there is someone in the congregation, a man who's showing these qualifications, and we'll look at in a minute, as a pastor, what we do is we talk to that person, and we pray, and we feel like this is a good, this, this is what God is doing. We'll bring that person before the congregation, and we'll say over the next year, we're going to train this individual, and there's going to be a year of testing, a year of, of, of training, a year of mentoring in that role, and then at the end of the year, we bring that person before the congregation for the final vote and affirmation. That's what we do here. It served us well. It gives everyone a year uh, to, to think through and to pray through and to meet with, and, and therefore you're equipped to make that decision. That's, that's what we do here. So what are we looking for in leadership? What qualifications are there? Look at verse 6. It begins with an overarching, kind of a, kind of a junk draw, if you can use that term, a, a general characteristic of an elder. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, Above reproach means that elders never sin. I'm waiting to see my wife smile. She's looking down. She's not looking up. Above reproach, blameless is another uh, a word that's used uh, in, that, in, in uh, some translation. It's repeated verse 7. In fact, in verse 7, it's added, there's a strong verb added to it. Must, he must be above reproach. The verb emphasizing something that must be done. It is the basic condition for evaluating, an overarching characteristic for evaluating a potential, uh, a, uh, potential elders with regards to the rest of the you know, qualifications so that we'll see. So in other words, this is kind of overarching, and then we'll see some more qualifications as we go through the rest of this verse. One thing this doesn't say, and a church should never do, is... Expect these qualifications from someone that they have already appointed. I think, I, I, I think it's possible that churches whom they may like someone and hope that they qualify will, will assign someone, either pastor or deacon, whatever, and hope they grow into that role. That's not what this says. Okay? This is to be exhibited before one is considered for eldership. Now, above reproach. Timothy talks about it too. First Timothy 3, you'll see all the qualifications. As we see here, there's a lot of terms are the same. But what's interesting is the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to Timothy and he said above, uh, that elders must be above reproach, he wrote to Titus and said the same thing but used a different Greek word, which I thought was interesting. In Timothy, when he says above reproach, that word means cannot be criticized. It's not blaring criticism in his life. In Titus, it means one that cannot be accused. Right? The, main, the main idea is the same. He has an untarnished reputation, not, not faultless, not flawless, but unaccused, with, with, with unquestioned integrity. The elders must have no conduct that would be grounds for any kind of accusation in the church and, I will add, in the public arena. Someone who is known for, yeah, that guy lies all the time. Not good. Yeah, that guy never follows through with his commitments. Not true. That guy, we'll see in a minute, this can't work out this way for an elder or it shouldn't be part of an elder. It would be out of control anger. Things that are blaring, things that everyone knows, that's disqualifying. Above reproach means you have a good reputation, not perfect, not faultless, of which there could be accusations to be made. Unlike the Cretans, who were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, right? So after this overarching characteristic, Paul becomes more specific and speaks first about the home life. The elder, he says, must be above reproach and the husband of one wife. 
Literally, a one-woman sort of man or a one-wife sort of husband. The Greek phrase um, describes fidelity within a marriage. It doesn't get into the differences with with divorce and remarriage and polygamy and, and death and all that stuff. Other passages do that. This one is speaking of fidelity and character. You can go to other scriptures that talk about legitimate and illegitimate divorces and remarriage, the death of a spouse and remarriage, the abandon, all that from other passages of scripture, which I'm not going today. This is a matter of character and fidelity because it stems from, you see the context, someone who is above reproach. And the question for the elder has to be and must be, does your devotion to your wife demonstrate a single-mindedness and a purity within this marriage covenant? MacArthur, John MacArthur wrote this, Paul is not referring to a leader's marital status as the, absent of, as the absence of the definite article in the original indicates. Rather, the issue is his moral sexual behavior. He says many men married only once are not one women men. Many with one wife are unfaithful to that wife. While remaining married to one woman is commendable, there's no indication or guarantee of moral purity. He continues, a one-woman man is a man devoted to, a one-woman man is a man devoted in his heart and in his mind to the woman who is his wife. He loves, desires, and thinks only of her. He maintains sexual purity both in his thought life and his conduct, end quote. You could have never been divorced and still be a sexual pervert, unfortunately. And be emotionally attached to other women that's not your wife. You could be a jerk and flirt and have serious problems with sexual innuendos. Disqualifies you. The husband of one wife. A one-woman man. I want to say this as well. This does not stop, and I've heard this before. I didn't even know it until I was into a pastoral ministry. Someone once said, well, then, you can't, if you're not married, you can't be an elder. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say single man can't be an elder. It says if you have a wife, you have to be devoted to her, right? You can be single and be an elder. Actually, in some context, that would be very helpful. Paul was a single man. Timothy was a single man. Last time I looked, Jesus was a single man. So that, that's not what it means. Devoted to, if you have a wife, to her. Next, his children. Look what it says. His children are believers. Interesting, the word believers is an adjective. Pistos, which can also be translated, which is a better translation, I think. You might have it on, the, on your notes in the bottom of your Bible, as faithful, trustworthy. Your children must be trustworthy, must be faithful. 2 Timothy 2.2, which you heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others. What Paul is telling Timothy and what he's saying here is make sure they're reliable, make sure they're dependable, make sure they're doing the right thing. It cannot mean children must be born again, for that would make the responsibility of the salvation of your children a matter of the elder's responsibility, and you're not saving anyone. You can't give life to anyone. The elder's kids, again, if he has kids, well, I don't have any kids. That No, no, if you have kids... The elders are open to an inquiry about their children's conduct, which again is a matter of reputation. Good and wise parenting uh, uh, can influence a child's action and encourage them to be faithful and trustworthy, but they cannot control the spiritual life in the sense of being born again. Only that is the work of God. They must preach the gospel, love the gospel, share the gospel, live out the gospel, yes. But God gives new life. And look at, the, look at the context. It says uh, uh, they must be faithful, or they must be uh, um, uh, uh, trustworthy, speaking about the conduct of the children. He says, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. There should be, the children should not, be invited, should not invite any accusation of constant wildness or debauchery or, or disobedient behavior. Obviously, we're not talking that the children listen to their parents each and every time and only do everything that's right. If that was the case, there'll be no leaders since he wrote this letter. None. Right? First of all, Paul used the word uh, children in this verse, techna, which means young children at home under the parents' authority. We don't hold leaders accountable for their 35-year-old children, right? Children under his story, under their care, under their supervision. That's what we're talking about. Second, we're talking about regularly undisciplined children. Right? You can't have children for a hot second and not know that they need discipline. 
But when a child is running the show, and their conduct is a constant running of the show and rebellion, they're not exhibiting this evidence of, of constant, consistent biblical discipline, love, and spiritual nurture. We're not talking about episodes. We're not talking about a bad week. We're not talking about, we're not even talking about, uh, and I'll say this, I think this is important too. We're not talking about even kids that are, are hard to manage. Nobody has any of those. What we're talking about is a relationship marked with love, discipline, respect, honor in the home. If, 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 if you can't love and get respect and honor from your children on a consistent basis, not a perfect basis, you won't be able to lead the church. Paul said to Timothy, if, ever, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So there's just this, I'm involved, loving and disciplining and training and correcting my child. Must be for an elder. Paul goes from domestic life at home to the demonstration of his life and character. Look at verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, underline that, must be above reproach. We saw that again. And what Paul's going to do, Paul's going to give five negative and five positive qualifications describing an elder. But first he says, he is God's steward. See, he is God's servant. He is, God's, he is doing the work in God's household. And he is ultimately accountable Ultimately, accountable to God himself. Paul is saying, listen, as an overseer in your home, as you take authority and you function as an overseer and care for your family, you should care also for not only your house, but God's house. And a man who's above reproach, living life out in the gospel, will also, in his home, will also most likely live that way in the house of God. You're God's steward. So let's look at the five. We'll go through these quickly. There's 11 of them all together. So five negative. Number one, he must not be arrogant. So you have elders must be what? Devoted to Christ. And in turn means he must be malleable. He must, he must be open to change. His own opinions, his own thoughts, his own considerations. And think about what other people say. Elders must recognize that although they have some authority, elders, leaders have delegated authority. It's not yours. We're under Christ. He's the head. He's the chief shepherd. He's the senior pastor of the church. We are under his authority. And elders have to be sensitive to the use of this authority and truly promote love of God, the love of God's work. Not my own personal agenda. It's hard to do. Not one filled with pride. In fact, I'm reading a book called Lead um, about leadership in a church. One of, the, one of the major ways in which leaders fall especially in the bigger churches, is isolation. I got all the answers. I got all the answers. I, I'll do it my way. I'll tell you, I'm greatly encouraged. We have a pastoral team here. I'm the lead pastor, and yes, some decisions I need to make, but we kick around almost everything in the church among all of us. We're, we're talking it out. We're looking at because we want to hear from God. And God has raised up these men to, to lead the church, and we are quick to hear from one another and, from each, uh, and so we can hear from God. So, one, must not be arrogant. Two, quick-tempered. All right? Got to control your emotions. Exercise proper judgment. That's what that word means. Especially when things are really important and, and people get fired up. I never get fired up, ever. I can be passionate. Most leaders can be. Personal feelings are, are run strong, but... It does forbid an impulsive and divisive response. It's not to make things more complicated. It is to, we're supposed to solve problems, right? Barton, in his commentary, he says, a a hot-headed person will speak and act without thinking, hurting people, and damaging the church's work and reputation. Let everyone be quick to listen, James says, slow to speak, slow to anger, for anger does not produce God's righteousness. Arrogant, quick-tempered, number three, a drunkard, right? Okay, I'm not going to get into it. It's not a prohibition of alcohol per se, although there are some here that should not drink ever. All right? It only leads to abuse. 
I'm not going to get into the liberties and, and, and the do's and the don'ts. I'm not going to get there. What I will say, though, is that an elder and leader of the church, their accountability partner cannot be a guy named Johnny Walker Red. That's all I'm saying, right? <laughs> not good. Not a good plan, right? Give me my absolute. I'm, going, I'm giving him a call, okay? They can't be one who, would, under pressure, runs to drugs and alcohol. Arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, number four, violent. How many men, you know, <laughs> just light the fuse, 4th of July, watch him go, hot-tempered, right? Looking to fight everyone, looking, <laughs> looking to knock everyone out every chance they get who disagree. Now, some people, you know, probably need to be knocked out, not by the elder. <laughs> we're to be gentle. Yes, we're to defend the faith. Yes, we can stand firm. Yes, but not violent. We're not angry. We're not, we're not trying to hurt others. We're not greedy for gain, right? It's not about money. What is it about? The love of money. What happens when money is your God? Well, that's all you think about. God's people are called to what? Love others. Love the Lord. Shepherd God's people, right? We're, the elders are the ones that should know the difference, between, the difference between using people to get their money and using money for the love of people. There's a difference. Elders should know that. Arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy. Now we see the six positive qualities. Number one, hospitable. Elders are called to have a, 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 an inviting heart, a, a, a welcoming face. You don't want elders in the church where you go to talk to them, they're like, yeah. You know, I hope you talk to somebody else. Like, no, you should have an, an inviting heart, a welcoming face. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the word uh, 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 hospitable in the, in the Greek, in the, in, the, in the scriptures, is a different word than, than fellowship. Koinonia. This is a different word. This actually, this actually means, hospitable, means a lover of strangers. Lover of strangers. You see, in that day, in antiquity, strangers would travel from city to city, town to town. There's no Motel 6, right? No Holiday Inns. It was, it was imperative that Christians would open their homes, especially to believers who were traveling, in order for the gospel to be preached and the gospel to be spread. The elder is, is someone then who is kind, who is considerate, who is generous, who is merciful to those outside the faith as well. You care about people. You care about strangers. You just, you just care about the welfare of others. Hospitable. A lover of good. A lover of good means that we're passionate for the things that God calls good, right? And, and how we live our lives, what we do with our time, with our money, what motivates and shapes the elder's heart is the, is the priority of people. You have to be lovers of good, doing what's right, loving that which is good and right. Hospitable, lover of good. Look, self-controlled, restraint. Word is an interesting word. It, it includes things like temperance and humility and carefulness, a, a control over one's mind, emotion. It has to do with being sober-minded or being sensible, listen, sensible in judgment, right? You don't want a pastoral team changing directions every three days and theology, reprogramming. Just, they just jump at every whim and everything seems to change all the time, not exercising good, sound judgment. Hospitable. Lover of good, self-control. Four, upright, living fair, just, according to the law of God. Honest in dealing with others, upright. Holy, lives devoted to God, faithful in godliness, and committed to God, being separated from the world and devoted to Christ. And finally, how do you do that? Number six, through discipline. It has to do with training, athletes who train or discipline, the exercise of, of godly restraint, based on the word of God. I think it also has to do with disciplining. An elder should be disciplined in, in, in worship, in, in reading scripture, in evangelism, and, and all the things that help us uh, grow in the grace and godliness of, of uh, in the grace of God and growing in godliness. But notice with me these last three, three qualities, the upright, holy, and, and disciplined. The, the, the word upright, as I mentioned, has this idea of dealing with people just and fair and, and, and honest toward others. They are, they are upright. Holy has to do with your devotion, your, your heart devoted to Christ. It has to do with your inward 
what's going on inwardly. So outward and inwardly. And this last one has to do with, with uh, um, up, excuse me, I'm sorry. Upright with others, holy, upward toward God, and then last one, inward for disciplining oneself. And although, I, you know, you can't read these qualifications in Titus and not think that some of them, I mean, all of them really in some degree or measure should be for all believers. But yet Paul takes these qualifications and says, these, look for these men. Look, look for these men to serve the church. Five negative, six positive. What's going on in the home? What's going on with his children? Is he, is, what's his character like? What is his reputation like? Is he open for criticism? Is he open for accusation? Are these the qualities that he not only has, he's growing in, not perfectly, not faultlessly, but he's growing in. Now let me bring it all together. Verse 9, he, this elder, must, be, must hold firm, must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught. To cling to, as what he says, to, to hold firmly, to, to be devoted to this trustworthy, this dependable, this reliable, this faithful word. He must hold firmly to it, not alter it, not water it down, preach the whole gospel. Don't reduce its importance as the false teachers were doing. He's to hold to the word. He is to fight the good fight of faith, which Paul told Timothy. Not give in to opposition but hold to the word the logos the true word remember we saw last week god the word is true because god cannot lie it is possible for an elders or for an elder or an elder team to come in and to hold the true and faithful word and then slowly as culture seeps in slowly let go of it Unfortunately, we've seen that in churches. Especially when you believe that the scriptures are only and solely the word of man. And you don't hold to the sufficiency, inerrancy, and authority of scripture. The churches will not hold fast the word that's been taught. It won't happen. Paul tells Titus, listen, make sure you, make sure the elders are honoring God and honoring his word. Standing on the word, the inspired and errant, free from error, word of God placing it in a proper priority and authority and sufficiency in your church, how you believe and what you do. That's what he's saying. Now, although I think he's talking about, in some ways, the whole counsel of God, I think when the Apostle Paul's, if you look with me in verse 9 here again, when he talks about holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught, I think he's mainly talking about the gospel. And I'll tell you why in a minute. I believe he's talking about the gospel, the application of the gospel, the implication of the gospel in their lives. And the reason why I say that is for three reasons. Number one, Paul has already told Titus in verse two how the knowledge of the truth, how the truth of the gospel leads to godliness. And therefore, hold firmly to the gospel in which I was taught. The second reason is because Paul is going to over and over in this letter, merge together the centrality of the gospel and the life it is meant to create and generate as we live life in the gospel. He, he does this over and over, and he, and he connects gospel centrality, the gospel doctrine, and gospel life. Third, Paul, in all his epistles, goes to great lengths of explaining the gospel, defending the gospel, fighting heretics with the gospel, and then gives the church what, what it looks like to apply the gospel. So I believe Paul is telling Titus and to the elders to hold fast the truth of the gospel in all its implication, all its application, as being taught to you, so that, the second part of this verse, that he, the elder, may be able to what? Give instruction in sound doctrine, gospel doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul gives double meaning here, a double purpose here. Two basic functions of the elder's role and all flowing from the gospel, the truth of the gospel. One, give instruction. Give instruction. Interesting word, the word instruction, I don't know why they interpret it this way. Parakaleho, it means to, to para means to be besides. Kaleho is to call. It is the same verb used that John, um, 
14, Jesus says, the paracletus, you probably heard that term before, uh, the Holy Spirit, I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, paracletus, to be with you forever. Paul is saying, look, come alongside those in the church, those, those that you are for, those, and speak courageously, courageously and comfort those you speak truth to. The elder is to encourage and to comfort by sound doctrine. That's what it says. He must hold firm the word and he must be able to instruct, to call alongside, to come alongside, to call and to encourage sound doctrine, the truth of the gospel. Secondly, to refute those who oppose it. I posted this on my Facebook. Some of you don't have Facebook or maybe not friends of mine, but let me quote John Calvin here. A pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means for doing both. And he who has been rightly instructed in it will be able both to rule those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth, end quote. Paul, you can't read his letters and not see that he is constantly confronting vigorously and opposing throughout his ministry the false teachers who teach that you can get right with God through faith and works, through through believing on Jesus and trying to be morally right to get right with God. He's constantly doing it. He vehemently opposes anyone who connects together faith in Christ alone, by salvation alone, but getting right with God through Christ and then adding human effort. That was his, read Galatians chapter (laughs) 1. I mean, talk about opposing the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, contrary to the one we preach, let him be damned. Paul's saying, use the gospel, teach and instruct in sound doctrine, and refute those who oppose the gospel. Be gospel-centered, be gospel-saturated. Now, during this week, we've got a few more minutes here. Bear with me. It's really important. This week, as I was reading through commentaries, I ran into, I, I read a guy by the name of Tim Chester. His commentary in Titus is really good. And he says there are two pastoral dangers, two common pastoral dangers as we wrap up this section. Really important. He says there are those who overpastor and there are those who underpastor. Overpassing is what happens when a leader or leaders exercise way too much control in the life of the church. They are quick to suppress any dissenting voices and even wind up bullying people. He says the unconscious aim of such leaders is personal control rather than the maturity of the congregation. Underpastoring it happens when leaders exercise too little leadership in the congregation. It happens when we uh, avoid confrontation. We fail to correct false teachings. We, we challenge and we don't challenge ungodly living and lifestyles. We may be good, he says, at encouraging people, but weak at rebuking those in error. He writes this, If the aim of those who over-pastor is personal control, the aim of leaders who under-pastor is personal comfort. So what, what's the remedy for leaders in the church? What is the remedy? The remedy is the gospel. And the key is to hold firmly to the message, the trustworthy message of the gospel that has been taught. And people who over-pastor, they, they want to be in control because their identity is wrapped up in their ministry. They're trying to prove themselves. And if you get in the way of their identity and what they need, watch out. They, they have not embraced the truth that God is good, God is in control. They haven't embraced the truth that their, their identity is found not in the ministry, but in the work of Jesus and the gospel. Their identity is not what they do, what they don't do. Their identity is in what Christ has done and has already done. What drives the under pastor is a fear of rejection, a craving to be liked. They rather fear man than fear God. Comfort at all costs. Avoid confrontation at all costs. Avoid the hard things that leaders have to be involved in. It's hard, but we're called to do that. Leaders need to discipline themselves with the gospel before they can discipline others. They need to be discipled in the gospel before they can disciple others in the gospel. They need to preach the gospel. They need to press in the gospel in their own hearts regularly before they lead others on how to preach the gospel to themselves. 
and apply it to their lives each and every time. Listen, when you over-pastor, you either can control others with fear or paranoia, or you'll start bullying people. If you're prone to, to, uh, uh, to neglect your God-given responsibility to protect and to love and to feed the flock, you're going to underpass. You're not going to do what God has called you to do. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you want to look for a leader, this is he. If you want to learn how to pray for your leaders, this is it. Pray for us. Pray for us. Uh, if you inspire to be a leader, look at this passage. Let me end with Tim Chester again. He says this, and I quote, A loving leader will put your eternal destiny before your present comfort and will challenge and rebuke you if they see you're treading that path. A loving leader will know that what is nicest for you to hear is not always what is best for you to hear. We live in a culture that flattens, that wants to flatten all authority. Most leaders do not relish confrontation. It's a job we hate doing. But what I must think, but what I must think about is the people in the church whose walk with God is being disrupted. It is my love for them that makes me go through with it. We need to appreciate and enjoy leadership God has given us in the church, trust them, and, and rest in the structures of the church. They provide safe and place to grow as a Christian. End quote. Great commentary. Just give me one more minute as the band comes up and let me get personal, okay? I say this on behalf of the pastoral team here. We love you. This is what we are to look like. Pray for us. Encourage us. Maybe we need to talk. Maybe, maybe there's something that's been on your heart. Doors open. We love you. We care about you. We want to see you freed to serve the Lord with your whole heart. We want to see your families healed. We want to see marriages restored. We want to see families living for the glory of God. This is the expectation of the pastor. Personally, I'll speak for myself for a moment. I love pastoring this church. I, I love you. We love you. Um, I, don't want, I never wanted to do church. I always wanted to be the church. And I, I could not be, I personally, I'm sure all the pastors feel the same way, we cannot be more overjoyed to see what God is doing in and among you, your families, the church, living on mission, seeing new families, people getting baptized. It is truly, truly a joy of love and gratitude from your pastoral team. We love you. We love serving you. Uh, we thank God for you. And we can worship the Lord together as God's people. So let's stand and do that together and just give him all the glory for all that he's doing here at King's Chapel.